and then I'm seeing the numbers and I'm like, okay, at what point do I admit that I'm a little bit a part of this? And how can I at least offer an opportunity for people to see alcohol from a similar lens that I do? You're listening to Good Is In The Details. I'm Gwendolyn Dolsky. And I'm Rudy Sallow. And this is the podcast where we learn what we didn't know we didn't know in the spirit of Socrates, all with the aim of a more knowledgeable life, a happy life, a good life. Today's episode, we have author of the memoir, High Tolerance. She's also a podcaster, Ella Parler. And Ella and I connected because we both went to Rosary High School, your sister school, Rudy. And it was just lovely to connect with her. We found out we're both in podcasting. And then when I found out she had a book, I said, hey, let me read it. Come on the pod. Oh my goodness. I was blown away by her work. So it's called High Tolerance because she had a career in marketing in the alcohol industry. And so this memoir is an inside view of what that marketing looks like when it comes to alcohol. So it's not an anti-alcohol, it's not a pro-alcohol, it's really about how is marketing influencing the psychology of your purchasing habits. And then we have some serious conversations about the role alcohol plays in our lives, but I also just really enjoyed the work ethic, the philosophy and the way in which she approached every single job and how she showed up fully for every job and that that opened up new opportunities for her. And I think that that is a great message for anyone young who is thinking about how to navigate themselves in the business world. Ella's book is a definite eye-opener to what it takes to devotion and showing up. Yeah, and I'll, I'll add that we do go a little bit into a transportation tangent here that Ella let me discuss, where we uh, talked about the role of transportation in driving under the influence how that worked with ride-sharing companies. We kind of do a kind of a look back in the past, uh, the, the past decade or so about the shift and, and the possible shift. Did ride-sharing actually bring down drunk driving? Ella had some very interesting statistics about it. And so she is a true expert in all things having to do with marketing and, and how some information can be manipulated and how you can be manipulated by marketing, the psychological impacts of it and assumptions. It's a very, very interesting discussion for anybody out there wondering how they can be influenced by marketing. Yeah. I loved Ella's book. Definitely recommend. I mean, I, I like this stuff on marketing because I'm interested in these debates that we've had before, you know, on the podcast about free will versus determinism and these ideas of what goes into your habits, what causes you to act in a particular way. Okay. So let's get our discussion about marketing with Ella Parler. Ella, welcome to Good is in the Details. We're going to be talking about your memoir, High Tolerance, which I am completely in love with and might be blushing and fangirling a bit over your work. So Ella, let's start out talking about what is marketing? Oh, gosh. Well, hi. I'm so excited <laughs> to be here. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for um, having me on. And I think, you know, marketing is such a buzzword these days, which I find a little interesting and frustrating because when I first got into marketing in 2000s, nobody really knew what it was. My parents looked at me like I was crazy when I told them that that was the path that I was going to take and drop out of being pre-med and undergrad. I didn't even really understand what the word marketing meant 
graduating high school, going into college and picking a major. It is interesting how you fast forward almost 20 years later and and marketing is the buzzword that everybody talks about. Oh, it's marketing, it's marketing, it's marketing. And I'm not convinced that everybody really understands what marketing is. Um, It is an umbrella term. And I like to use the dating analogy. This is actually how I was taught what marketing is. When we look at PR, public relations, that is the idea that a third party, a friend is setting you up on a date and they're telling you, you have to date this person. They're beautiful. They're smart. They're funny. They're talented. You're going to love them. And advertising is someone explaining to you why you should date them. So we see that a lot with online dating. Hey, here's what I am. Here's what I have. Here's why you should like me. I'm funny. I'm wealthy. I'm beautiful. I'm whatever, athletic. Marketing doesn't do any of that. Marketing just is. It presents, whether it's a brand, personality, person in the dating world, it's not, hey, here's why you should date me. It's, this is who I am. And it naturally attracts. And so that's what I really like about marketing is that it is the true mixture of science, data, and then those soft, emotional skills, the EQ. Um, Mm -hmm. So at its core, marketing is storytelling. It's about weaving a narrative that resonates with people on multiple levels. And it really does combine that art of storytelling with the science of creating strategies based upon data from previous campaigns. And it really just makes sure that your message is impactful and reaching the proper audience. I heard not too long ago, somebody describe that marketing pushes experiences, not product. Is that true? Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. I can't get that out of my head now because now I'm thinking about anything that I am drawn to, that it is the experience. It's not, that's what they're doing. That's what makes it so genius. And I learned that at my time with, I refer to them as high octane in my book, Mm -hmm. but it's Red Bull. I don't know if I'm allowed to say that, but I'll just say it. It's not that hard to figure out. I worked for Red Bull for three years. And nowadays, you cannot take a marketing class without Red Bull being mentioned. Um, The pioneering that they did starting in the 90s, when they came to North America in the late 90s, from a marketing perspective, was exactly that. They didn't want to just advertise this brand, they really created experiences so that when you walked into a store and you touched that can, you remember the first Red Bull you ever had, you remember where you were, and you remember what you were experiencing during that time. And Red Bull really is the godfather from a beverage, at least product perspective of beverage marketing. And I feel very proud that I worked for them. My publisher just didn't let me use their real name, which I found very frustrating, but that's fine. Mm. Yeah. So it, it really is about creating experiences. And that's where I say like the art becomes knowing the story you want to tell within these experiences, who you're targeting, and letting the product kind of be the, the last piece of it instead of leading with the product. I'm thinking now about the alcohol industry, because there are some things in your memoir that you pointed out in terms of trends that I also can't get out of my head, I think it was that everybody has a relationship with alcohol, whether you know it or not. And that it's projected that there will be more that is sold, even though the population is not exactly growing. What I don't know what to make of that, Ella. What does that, what does that mean that we all 
in one way have a relationship with alcohol. I think when I said that your relationship, everyone has a relationship with alcohol, it really was because, and, and I wanted to put this in the book and we ended up just chopping it all out. I've talked to a nauseam with various leaders in the Christian church um, about Jesus's first miracle, right? So removing religion aside for a second, just looking at the Bible as a really old story. There's this Jesus character who, who performs several miracles and his very first miracle was turning water into wine. Why was that his first miracle? And what was the significance of that, of that miracle, right? So when we look at alcohol from a cultural perspective, it's far beyond American being the baby country that we are. It really is a huge part of humanity, the fermentation process. And, and I think that's where wine really resonates with individuals because it has that historical implication of, of wine being a part of old European history. And, and you look at the grapes and the apples and the fruit aspect of it, and it's really beautiful. But taking it into modern day, and exactly what you talked about, like when we look at American culture specifically, which is where my narrow expertise is, it is really interesting for me as a marketer to spend all day talking about various tactics, budgets, projections, looking at research, and then stepping into my everyday life. And I think in many ways, I'm a lot more sensitive to the permeation of alcohol in our culture as a society, because I'm looking at it through the lens, not only as a consumer, which I am, but someone who is always trying to keep my thumb on the pulse of the market to make sure that I'm developing relevant programming. And I probe when I'm out and about, why are you drinking that? What do you like about that? Why did you pick X instead of Y? That's actually how I, I met my current partner. He was at a bar and he had ordered Casamigos, which is a high-end tequila, and then he ordered an Añejo, which is a extra-aged tequila. And he ordered a Casamigos Añejo and soda. The bartender says, sorry, we don't have Casamigos. We have Don Julio, we have Patron, but we don't have Añejo. We only have Blanco. And he goes, you know what? Forget it. I'll just do Jack and Coke. And I thought to myself, who would switch for this premium, refreshing soda plus high-end tequila for a Jack and Coke, which is Coca-Cola, lots of syrup, lots of flavors. You got this bourbon, which is not necessarily top shelf. And I just turned to him and I said, why did you make that change? This doesn't make sense. <laughs> These mm -hmm. are totally different categories. These are totally different beverages. And we had this really exciting conversation, right, about his decision making and, and me going as a marketeer. Why did you make that decision? Like, I need to know because when I'm marketing a premium tequila, I'm not targeting the Jack and Coke users. I'm targeting the seltzer users and the vodka users because we know that data shows us that those are the individuals who will go for a higher end tequila, not the Jack and Coke. But this mm -hmm. guy is, is blowing my mind. It's really interesting because when you start to challenge people in everyday life about their purchasing decisions when it comes to alcohol, they don't have the answers. And they almost get uncomfortable when you start probe, when I start probing, and I'm not probing out of a judgment. It's a genuine curiosity and excitement that the other person might not understand why I'm asking these questions, which I do so many areas of my life because it's everywhere. And I think that when you start to talk about the overconsumption, the abuse, the addiction, which I am far from an expert. I'm, I'm, I'm on the other side 
of the business, right? So when we look at the detriments for our end users, our consumers, our families, that is not where I'm the expert at all. The alcohol industry, we stay far away from that side of the narrative. But for me, as an individual who's living with people, and I see where it comes in and out of our society, both in my little world, and then looking at the numbers, I started having a bit of a just a bit of a schism inside of being dismayed by seeing people post 2020. These are just pure stats. People are drinking more than ever. And we see studies come out about, oh, Gen Z, they're drinking less. Mm, Yes and no. (laughs) Millennials and Gen Yers and boomers are compensating for those deficits. 2020 was world-breaking, sales-shattering numbers that we had in 2021. Not so much 2020, but 2021. The volume and the dollars that increased with the lack of marketing dollars that were pulled back um, after the pandemic. And in my personal life, I saw individuals who didn't really drink, they started drinking. And so I see these trends and then I'm seeing the numbers and I'm like, okay, at what point do I admit that I'm a little bit a part of this? And how can I at least offer an opportunity for people to see alcohol from a similar lens that I do, not from this, oh, you drink too much or you're abstinent, so you must be XYZ, but really just, huh, why are they offering me a glass of champagne when I go get my hair and nails done? Mm -hmm. Why are they offering me a drink of whiskey when I go shopping at the mall? And just taking a step back, because I'm sitting there looking at it like, how did you get this? Did you get this legally? Was this distributed properly? I know that there are laws around this and you're not supposed to be distributed. You know, I'm my brain goes that direction. But, you know, I really wanted to offer an opportunity for people to just do an inventory on their relationship with alcohol, because I think that we're marketed to a lot more than we recognize and the numbers are showing it. Yes. I mean, what I'm thinking of In my intro to philosophy class, we'll go over one of these classical questions of, do you have free will or are you determined? And a lot of the evidence, and we even did an episode on this, a lot of the evidence is pointing us more towards we're determined beings, meaning that everything you do is not, there's nothing you do that is independent of a cause. And I'll use business and advertising as an example. And so I'm thinking about the different causal factors that would bring about this relationship to alcohol or use of alcohol. And I can remember, I think it was in 2020, Rudy, I don't know if you remember this, but I tweeted out something like, are we all just day drinking now? And then, you know, you and I hopped on a Zoom or something and you said something like, yes, we are. And I'm also thinking in terms of transportation, that there's a different relationship between going out and drinking now than there was before Uber and Lyft. That, you know, when Rudy and I way back when were in high school or in college, we'd had to have a friend who would stay sober. Somebody maybe would collect keys at the front of a door or I shouldn't say high school, older. (laughs) (laughs) But there was always somebody who was supposed to be the driver, the designated driver, because you also had mothers against drunk driving. And so there was a lot going on around alcohol and driving. But once you remove the problems with transportation and with drinking, people feel free to go out and drink because they don't have to worry about driving. And I'm wondering, and then same thing with the pandemic, if everybody's just at home, if they're not worried about going out, then alcohol seems to be what people are turning to. 
great job summarizing that, Gwen. I have definitely had an uh, influence on you. Look at look at you <laughs> talking, bringing in <laughs> transportation. I mean, I am. This is. I'm sorry, Ella. This is a like a proud uh, brother moment. I <laughs> talk incessantly about transportation. I think about it all day. I write about it, and I never thought I would see the day where where Gwen would beautifully bring in transportation into a discussion about alcohol, right? I like, once again, there was this component of when we were all youngins, at least Gwen and I, there was MAD, there was designated drivers and and there, you know, you know cabs were not ubiquitous, uh, uh, especially around, you just didn't see them when we were in high school or, or where we lived in Orange County. And it is interesting Gwen's point is really good in that Uber and Uber and Lyft to those companies, let's just call them ride-sharing companies in general, did provide some freedom, if you will, to, hey, drink as much as you want. You're being safe. And I wonder, I don't know. I've never seen the statistics on this at all, but I, uh, but I do wonder if there was ever any kind of investments in those company before before they were public companies. I wonder if there was any kind of cross promotions with the alcohol um, companies and those companies. That's that's a really interesting question, yeah. um, which, I, which by, the, by, by, by the way, I mean, look, look, if you're an alcohol company, you know that you're putting out a product that if you drink too much of it, either A, people are going to do something illegal and that could lead to number of deaths. So I'm not, I'm not lambasting them if they did some kinds of partnerships. I think it's actually, a you know, hey, look, we're putting out this product. We might as well make sure people safely get home so they can not kill anybody and, you know, go out and drink some more or whatever it is. But I'm just curious, Ellie, do you, do you have an answer to that by chance? Absolutely. So a few things which I find interesting. I, for many years, was based in California. So when Uber began way back in the days, we're talking 2012, and started going into major cities. When I was first starting in the industry, I was basically an executive assistant to an executive for the company, right? So I did a lot of, uh, my allowed to say bitch work, um, <laughs> difficult work. So part of that was booking, booking limousines for clients, partners, we didn't use this word back then, but influencers, so forth. So I had to book limousines, which was a really big pain because I had to find limousine companies local to whatever market we were in. And then we're booking them for eight hours, but really it was just to hold people's purses, you know, because from one event to the next. And it was very frustrating and it was just a lot of work. And then in 2012, Uber at the time was just a luxury, basically a short-term limo service. It's a limo, a Lincoln town car that comes and picks you up and drops you off. And then you call another one, but it's going to be different. And yes, you have to take your stuff with you, but I'm not paying for the eight hours. And I loved it. I can say that I did work with Uber in that regard. And I actually had an opportunity to meet with an executive from the a marketing executive with Uber in my personal life, not through my work at all, but in my personal life. And I asked, I said, this was around 2016. I said, why don't you guys advertise the fact that you've saved a bunch of lives from drinking and driving? Why, why haven't you? And the response I got was, well, we would promote that if it were the truth. But every time we do research studies to prove that we have saved lives by getting drunk drivers off the road. We actually find that people are drinking and driving more today than ever mm. before because of exactly what you talked about. It is so common and easy to drink. The fact is people who break the law are going to break the law. People like the three of us, right? I will say it. I'm not just saying this because I am, am was in the industry. Drinking and driving has never been allowed with me. It's not feasible. The ugliest you will see me get is when someone tries to be reckless 
by drinking and driving. I have lost friends to people who drink and drive, so I just have no tolerance for it, and I never did. That's not just because, oh, I have to say it, drink responsibly, and it's never been okay with me, right? Me, me too. Me too. I've, I've literally, you know, gotten into verbal spats with people who have called, you're not my mother, you're not my father, I could do that. I mean, it's it's actually, it, it's terrible, but I agree with you, and I, there, there's a lot of reasons from that, right? We grew up in Gwen and I at least grew up in the 80s. We, there was Mothers Against Drunk Driving. There was this focus on it. But I've probably never told anybody this story, at least on this podcast. But when I was in college, it was in a fraternity at one particular smaller college before I, I wound up transferring to UCLA. Uh, it was another UC. One night, I was going home and I saw a then fraternity brother uh, I was a, I was the last person to see him alive because I, I as I was walking home I stopped by his apartment talked to him for a couple of minutes and then it turns out literally five minutes after I left that individual got into a car with somebody else that I knew and they wound up getting into a car accident and that fraternity brother died wow. and so when I was a freshman in college this was like the first um, this was the, like the second quarter winter quarter uh, I was at a funeral for somebody who died from drunk driving and that had a profound impact on me to see a 19 year old kid and to see his whole family crumble around that. So it definitely had an impact on me. The fact that I was the last person to see him alive uh, really messed with me too. So I, and I bring that up sometimes. I literally bring that up with these people, you know, that, I, that I've talked to uh, about the drinking and driving and, and they, they don't care because they think they're invincible. It's just unfortunate. Yeah. Just wanted to bring up that story as to why. No, of course. Thank you so much for sharing. I will say, I, when I say it gets ugly, I will call 911. I'll say, okay, get in the car. Go. Go. Mm. Hi, I'd like to report a drunk driver. And you will never see someone. You, you, it's funny that you say you get in spats. Like, I have had physical altercations. Because my standard of who I'm going to be around, I really mean when I say I don't have tolerance. Okay, then explain to the police officer that you're sober enough to drive. But you will not do this on my watch. And I will not be involved with someone who tolerates this kind of behavior. And I'm so sorry, Rudy, because I know way too many stories of families, children, innocent people whose lives have been destroyed because someone is so reckless and selfish and out of control. I just, I, I think that anybody who gets a DUI is out of control. It's not your first time. I don't want to hear it. I've been breathalyzed. I'll say this. I was breathalyzed in a situation where a friend was drinking and driving. I did not know it because I would not have gone in the car with him had I realized that. But he had been drinking before we met up. We get pulled over by the police. They breathalyzed me. And I was too drunk to drive, right? I had been drinking that night. But they breathalyzed me because they said, if you're sober enough, you can take his car home so we don't have to tow it for him. And he begged me, please, please get breathalyzed. And I said, I am not sober enough to drive. I've been drinking. I had like four drinks. I'm drunk. Like, there's, I'm not driving. I felt buzzed and I blew a 0.04. Mm -hmm. So I was sober enough to drive legally. And I still refused to do it. Because <laughs> I just, I just, I didn't trust the situation. And my friend was really upset with me. He was like, they're going to tow my car. And I said, I'm sorry, I don't feel comfortable driving. Right. And that was a 0 0.04. And that's what really hammered in for me. If you're blowing past a 0 0.08, if you ever sat around at a party and done the breathalyzer game, okay, which I strongly encourage people to do, I want you to know what 0 0.08 feels like. It's not sober. You feel buzzed. And if you feel buzzed, yeah. you shouldn't be driving, period. I, I just, I don't understand it, but I do hate to hear that, Rudy, because it's, it's so 
heartbreaking. And then for me within the industry, I will say like, that's where we say that going back to the Uber, people who break the law are going to break the law. It doesn't matter what resources are available. They're just going to do it. I don't know that you can really point the finger at the alcohol industry and certainly not Uber, but the fact that they're showing that people are, that there are more DUIs, <laughs> that there have been more fatalities since Uber is kind of frightening. Gosh, I did and not And goes know back that. to what I was saying that we're drinking more than ever. Mm-hmm. That's why you won't see Uber say, hey, we've saved lives. They, they can't say that. Yeah, that's a good, it's a good point. You know, the other thing that this kind of ties into is transportation systems, right? Transit. It's been really interesting to see how, and my last Forbes article actually touched upon this, and, and, and this is kind of something that the whole transit industry is focusing on. There's this current possible shift in focusing on people that go out at night, people that go to concerts, people that go to events to make sure that there's enough trains, to make sure that there are enough easily accessible buses, to make sure that there are some micro transit solutions because cities are still having problems with people commuting to work, right? So like um, the title of my article is nine to five city is dead, but there is still hope. And what I'm, what I'm advocating for and what we're seeing to being discussed by public transit agencies is to focus transportation on nightlife, right? Because cities are actually getting people to come into the cities to go to concerts. I mean, there's all these statistics about Taylor Swift and the Swifties using public transportation and the economic impact. And to be like, oh, maybe we should have our trains focused on people coming in and out of the city because they're going to be drinking. The parking situation's crazy. Let's reduce some, some rage. And so to like shift transit away from focusing on the commuters who are not necessarily going into work or they're not going into work every single day of the week to, you know, the nightlife um, aspect of things. I, I don't know if you guys have heard anything about that, but but it's, it's also interesting in this discussion as well that Uber and Lyft or ride sharing is not the only solution to quote unquote drunk driving. We need to rethink our transportation options, right? I advocate for redoing our infrastructure to for driverless cars, right? There was this there was this thinking a couple of years ago that, oh, driverless cars, they're around the corner and soon enough, we're going to be able to drink and drive and sleep in our car and they're going to take us to and from and here and there, which is absolutely ridiculous because there's still human drivers on the road. And Ella, to your point, some of those human drivers are still getting drunk. What you want to do is you want to have those driverless cars have their own lanes where there is only other driverless cars there and that will be safer. And I kind of advocate for that. So it's kind of part of this discussion. See, see, Ella, I could just talk. See, Gwen, this is your fault. You opened up the transportation. Now, now I can't shut up. Now I'm going to shut up. I'm sorry. Well, I'm going to, something I want to do with Ella is that I, as I was reading your memoir, it was twofold for me and that there was the discussion about marketing and that business. But then there's this unfolding of your journey. Like the marketing and the alcohol was just the avenue for an expression of one thing that really hit me was your work ethic. I'm telling you, I just recently in a lecture, we were going over Bell Hooks' book, All About Love, and chapter four talks about work. And what you did in your memoir is what I've been trying to explain about that chapter four about the relationship with work, where she writes that, and I'm summarizing here, that it is an expression of self. And no matter how big or small the job is, it is about how you show up. And I think right now, a lot with Gen Z and maybe some Gen Alpha, there's this disconnect between the self and the corporation and this feeling of, and I understand some of the economic issues, but this feeling of, 
why am I putting in all this all this effort for somebody else to make money and I am having a difficult time? But the way in which you're writing about your attitude towards work is that it was about how you showed up. It was about your opportunity to shine and how that connected you. You wrote on page 20, your first business lesson, your reputation and referrals are crucial in unlocking business opportunities. And you took that from your first jobs all the way up to business. Where did you get this work ethic? Who inspired you? Is that just innate? Is that from family? I really appreciate that you picked up on that. You're the first person to give that feedback because I rewrote that chapter after visiting the mall for the first time about six months ago. Mm -hmm. I wanted to focus on the idea because it is very clear exactly what you said with the younger generations that uh, this is someone else's business and I'm making them rich and I'm just here and I'm going to do the bare minimum by having a pulse and showing up and I deserve to be paid for such. And I will sit on my phone and I'm so underwhelmed with the customer service lack thereof in the retail space today. And every time I leave, retail spaces like a mall where there's several retail spaces that I have to visit in one time. I am just so sad at the lack of work ethic because it's so different than, than the mindset that I had. And, and, I, and I don't know how to solve it, but I was hoping in, in writing about that work ethic in every single role that I had that hopefully it can inspire people that you can leverage the infrastructure that quote someone else's business that's making them you know rich and, and not you. You can absolutely leverage that arena to magnify who you are. Yes. And I will say that you know for me, where I was blessed, and I know that's not everybody that this won't be everybody's story, but in different ways, both of my parents were single parents, and they struggled a lot differently when I was growing up. My dad had a successful, wonderful career, but he was struggling to be the father he wanted to be and make the time because his career was extremely demanding. And then his commute was demanding. And then he's coming home in a bad mood. And he would say, I just need to get into a better mood. And so I watched that emotional struggle where he would say, I'm struggling to be the dad you deserve right now because I have a very difficult job. He was a, a police officer and he was in the military and he saw really a lot of ugly things in the world. And then he has to go home and be dad when he just saw really horrific things, right? I was aware of that emotional work of you don't always, it's not a switch and you're going to recognize it, but we're going to work to show up how we want to show up in the spaces that we are. And then on the other side of the spectrum with my mother, she was always stressed out about finances, but she worked really, really hard and she would get awards and accolades and worked throughout her career. What I did see with both of my parents was that their work ethic yielded successful lives. I saw that firsthand. I saw the struggle and then I saw the other side of, oh yeah, I worked really hard and this is how I built this and this is why I got promoted. Those are traditional routes that maybe aren't applicable to everybody's life and career path. But for me, I just was always taught, as corny as it sounds and simplistic, is to do my best. I know what it's like to be a customer who's looking for a shirt. I want to treat everybody with the type of customer service that I expect and hope for when I go into an establishment 
and I tried to be transparent and saying a lot of times it was self-serving, not to get a promotion, but I was like, oh, if I could just get them to add this boost to their smoothie, it's going to cost an extra 25 cents and they're going to put that 75 cents in the tip jar. It was brilliant. But if I give them a dollar back, they're going to put the dollar into their wallet. But if I could just get them to break that dollar, I'm going to get the whole, I'm going to get the rest of it, right? Let, let me pause you right there because I know Rudy's going to love this. Can you can you back up and tell that story of when you were working at the smoothie shop, what the cost of the smoothie was? So the smoothie was around $5, was eight, like a, a whole $5, five dollars, zero cents. So often people pay with a five, a 10, a 20, and then they're getting 10, $5 back or no change. But a boost cost 25 cents. And a boost was this vitamin that you would add to the smoothie. It could be protein, vitamin, energy boost, whatever, right? They were 25 cents. So if I could get them to add that boost, then their total would be $5.25. They give me a 10 and I'm giving them three quarters back. And they almost always dropped it. It became a game to me. <laughs> this is where my data analytics comes in. And I'm always like, okay, let's see if I can get them. If I And it, and it becomes this chain of events. But it was the idea of selling them something, but also finding their need. It wasn't just, hey, buy this boost, please, please add it. That's not how I approached it. I would look at their energy coming into the door and I'm always evaluating what boost do they need? We have six or seven options. What do they need? Oh, they're wearing workout clothes. They need a protein boost because they're going to recover from their workout. Are you working out today? Let's add a protein boost to that. And so I just made it my own mission. And, and then you'd get the tip. Well, we had to share tips, which was very frustrating, but <laughs> consistently the tips were highest on my shift, which I brought forth to my manager. I said, can I see an analytics of the shift and tips? Do you notice how all the top shifts are with me on there? That's not a coincidence. I should be getting more cut here, people. <laughs> but, you know, it, it was... Isn't that brilliant, Rudy? <laughs> so she would have them do the yeah, 25 cents so she genius. could get the tip back. Cause a 25 cents a booster, though, that that that's what I'm focusing in on. Like, <laughs> like where, where what, what, when, when was that? And oh my God, who wouldn't take a 25, who wouldn't spend 25 cents to get more protein, to get more ripped, to get more muscles? I mean, how, who could say no to that? <laughs> did you, did you, from your data analytics, did you actually come up with the people that did say no? So I, yes, people would say no, because some people just don't want anything, right? Do you want to add that? And I learned if you say, do you want to add? They would always say no. So you don't say that. You say, gosh, you look tired. You could use a boost. <laughs> You know, and you, you just put it like that. I'm, nice. I'm not kidding. I was 16 nice. years old. And so I kept this Genius. energy all the time, right? And so a group of four people walk in and they're in workout attire. They're wearing yoga pants and sweatbands or, you know, hats, whatever. They were, they were in regular workout attire. They come in and they got the same spiel. I give everybody in workout attire and I'm pointing at each of them and saying, you need a soy protein boost and you need a whey protein boost. And I'm just inflating their egos and they turned out to be from headquarters. I had no idea. I ended up getting a promotion and that, that really kicked off my career in marketing because I, I ended it. up joining their team. Mm -hmm. Well, that's what I mean is that oh, 16. showing up for work is that it really is about an expression of oneself about what one can accomplish. So if it, you know, you're a barista, or you're, you know, Rudy working at McDonald's, like what you have there is you're gaining the skill set for interacting with people. So it doesn't have to be just about the corporation. It's about the way you decide to be in the world and what ha habits. And that's when I was reading this, I was just thinking this is something I would love 
for younger people to read. This is something that I could have used to read, just be inspired. The trajectory of your career is really amazing just to see how it flows from one opportunity to another because of the way you showed up. And I think that's really inspiring. I want to ask a question about something. <sighs> I don't, I think I emailed you this, like I don't know how to ask exactly. I just know that it's stood out to me. It's on my mind. The situation where you had an interaction with a VP, the person, the older gentleman did not realize that you worked for him and he made a sexual comment to you. And that was quite upsetting. You have this interaction with the VP, the way in which you handled it when you realized that that sexual remark that he made you to you, the inappropriate remark was actually hindering your advancement in the company. And you had the audacity to confront him about it, say you would leave, stuck to your word and did it. And that is something that I could have used when I was younger, because I know that there are a couple situations that I walked away from, but it took me years to be able to do it. And there's also been times when I've um, had inappropriate interactions with somebody and I walked away feeling embarrassment and shame and wondering if I could have done something different the way you handled it. I, I don't know. I'm just wondering. I, I don't even know what the question is. I'm just thinking that this would be so helpful for younger women to read because I think that this is, um, you know, how to handle that. You handled it. What do you have to say about that? Maybe I'll just open it up. Or has anybody else responded to that yeah. part? I will say that, and again, it goes back to what we were saying about work ethic, where I can lay my head at night almost always is that I really do wake up and I try to show up my best. I don't always do the best. I'm not perfect. But at the very least, when we talk about your reputation mattering and being very cognizant of how you're showing up in every job, every project, where I was able to ascertain what was happening was because of relationships that I had that he was not aware that I had. I was getting information from other people about him deciding not her. And I will say that in my career, I have had, we'll say secret relationships, meaning like relationships, whether it is an administrative assistant, a secretary, an HR analyst, where I have relationships with them because I ran into them in the bathroom and I made small talk and I was nice to them. And then we keep in touch and I reach out on Christmas and send them a card whatever it may be. By the way, Christmas cards, since it's the holiday season, but this might come out after the holidays, Christmas cards have been one of the best marketing tools I've used in corporate America. I should have put that in my book. <laughs> I would send everyone a Christmas card. I would sometimes pay out of pocket because the amount of people who would say to me, do you know that in the X amount of years I've been at this company, nobody's ever thought to give me a Christmas card? Everyone gives the executives a Christmas card. Everyone sends it to the VPs and the maybe even the managers, but I would send it to the analysts, the part-time employees, anybody I could. I wanted them to feel seen, even if that meant paying out of pocket, which I did several times because the $200 investment I might make to send a team Christmas card to an analyst will save my butt down the line more than I realized. And the relationship building that I've been able to do very quickly in a working environment was really helpful <laughs> in that particular circumstances because I got confirmation from two individuals that said he doesn't know who he wants to hire, but he says it can't be you. Mm. And it happened three times. I only write about two of the times it happened. It actually happened three times, but the third time was too convoluted to try to add into the story. Mm -hmm. And I felt like it was taking away from my story. By the time I picked up the phone and called him directly, I honestly didn't think he was going to answer. 
my intention was to leave a cryptic, ominous voice memo on his phone because I called his work office, his office, like his actual phone in the office. And he answered and I thought, oh, shoot. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I didn't think about that. And he answered saying my name. He knew it was me calling. Probably because it piqued his curiosity, like, what is she calling about? You know, but he knew it was me. It was I. That's when I just, I very frankly, I skipped the pleasantries and I said, why are you actively, God, I can't remember verbatim, but it was something to the effect of, why are you actively intervening with my progression at this company? I just said that with no context, just that. Because he, I knew he knew, he would know that I know. The sexual harassment, and I say harassment with quotations, to me, even in retrospect, is so convoluted because he was unaware that I worked for the company. He didn't realize. He just thought I was another pretty girl in town, I guess, is how he saw me. And so it wasn't obvious, right? And even though I knew who he was, it was just so shocking and uncomfortable. And it went from, oh, I'm going to network with this guy to, uh-oh, I don't really know how to step away from this instead of besides physically stepping away. And then the validation that I got, which was again, I think very godly that I got the confirmation after leaving the organization years later that he admitted he remembered everything. Oh my God. Because I just kept telling myself, he doesn't remember. He doesn't remember. He doesn't remember. And he admitted, he didn't admit to actively, you know, he never made the correlation of, oh yeah, you made me uncomfortable. So I needed to keep you as far away from my office as possible because I was afraid that you were going to use that against me. But I was intimidated by his power. I will say when we look at a more classic case of sexual harassment. I didn't feel the hostile work environment because he worked in a different office. You know, I had to be on calls with him, but I wasn't, I will say I've had more uncomfortable situations with other people throughout my career, but that one felt important to tell because it didn't fit that classic, oh, if you don't sleep with me, I'm going to fire you narrative that we often see. And I would say that a lot of women the sexual harassment that we experience, men and women, that we experience in the workplace doesn't fit the classic case. And that's why we don't feel comfortable coming forward. And then you add the lack of advocacy and coaching. There just wasn't anyone outside of my personal life within my professional space where I even felt like I could just let it breathe and say, hey, this is what happened. Can you keep an eye on it? Can you validate me a little bit? The validation I got were from individuals who had no idea what was going on. Their comments were, oh, who's gotten out for you? And we don't know why. I mean, I'm very glad that you included it. I think that, (laughs) you know, like I said, it stood out to me because I've been in a similar situation. I want to say similar, so not not exact. It took me so long to, to deal with it. And I was just really inspired and just felt like giving you a high five, I guess, for the way you did handle it. Well, I think I want to wrap up with just a question about writing. You had your health issues. You decided to do this new chapter, metaphorically, literally, um, to sit down and pen your memoir, pen your, your insights. And there is a big shift that happens as we're writing. We kind of learn more about who we are and what we're thinking. So I'd love to know who was the Ella who first sat down to write this and who is the Ella now? What did you learn about yourself through this writing process? I am very much a different person because when I started writing the book, it was before my health issues and surgeries. Oh, <laughs> So I, mm-hmm, I started writing the book last August 
wrote it for maybe two months. It was supposed to be about my career and my dating life and the duality of the hopping back and forth between like work and drinking and breakups and drinking and all of that. So it was supposed to be a little bit more salacious. But after my health issues and deciding that I was ready to end and sunset my career in the alcohol industry because of my health issues and just some epiphanies that I had, which I outline in the in the final chapters, was that I really narrowed in over the last year because my surgeries were a, a year ago, December 8th, 2022. I started narrowing in on this idea of what is personal fulfillment? Where am I making meaningful connections? And how am I prioritizing my spiritual, emotional, financial, and physical health? And is being a part of this industry serving my purpose any longer? I do believe it did for many years. And I do talk about that a little bit in the book, but I've been able to bring light into very dark places by working in the industry. I always say like I was in places that pastors and priests would never find themselves. And yet I was still able to talk about my faith in Jesus Christ and bring that into certain spaces because of my job. So I always found purpose. But as I step into a new and having that hard reset with two months to myself and my thoughts, really going, all right. I don't want to be a part of a numbing journey anymore. I really want to help people in their healing journey and just bring to light. I think we know that we're overstimulated. We know that we need to numb on an individual level, on on a societal level. And I really want to start inspiring an idea of focusing on the healing and not waiting until the end of our journey to make that happen, it really can start today. I won't say it's a 180, but I am a very different person than I was when I started that book uh, in August. I also took a huge break on writing, of course, because of everything that happened. I saw that you also traveled to write this book. Just wondering, did you have a favorite place? Because I thought you were in Greece, so right? So from a writing, yes. Did you go to yes. Santorini? So from a writing perspective, I ended up not making it to Santorini just because the boat the timing of the boat were just too difficult to make it from Athens. I was like, okay, we're skipping that. I went to Greece, Croatia, uh, Montenegro, and I will say my favorite spot to write was Amsterdam. Oh, yes. You have these beautiful cobblestone roads. It's very quiet and quiet. It's all bicycles, no cars, so you don't have any honking. It's very quiet. Nice. Now you're talking. Now you're talking. No cars. That's I know where I'm gonna move to to retire. That's my that's my jam. It's all bicycles. They have more bicycles than people in Amsterdam. Oh, I love it. It's wonderful. And quite frankly, you know, they have these hash shops, coffee shops, where they're serving a small joint and a coffee together, hand in hand. And I was just sitting, sipping my espresso, smoking a joint in broad daylight. And I thought, okay, I can write in this in this type of arena. It was it was really really wonderful. I hope I can say that I use cannabis on the show. I hey, hope that's, that's okay. what Rudy um, Rudy's our lawyer. Rudy, is that okay? She's I mean, in look, Amsterdam. It's, it's totally uh, legal. It's technically, it's uh, it's totally you know. I don't know the laws in Amsterdam, but there's guess guess what, guys? There's <laughs> There, yeah. There's the hint, hint. It's uh, it's uh, it's it's legal in most of the states. It's still you know Schedule One under the Controlled Substances Act, but uh, some people do that. Uh, so but it's, in you, Amsterdam, whatever you're it's comfortable legal. with. Yes, it's legal. Well, not necessarily. Well, it's. <laughs> 
do you, yeah, okay. you, you have enough time for me to explain all the actually. But just sure, it's legal. It's all good. Everything's all good. And this has been fantastic. And you were there, you and it was a great moment. And God bless you for admitting it. That's fantastic. Uh, a joint in a coffee sounds terrific. Especially with no cars. Uh, it's, yeah, it sounds Ella, fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on Good Is in the Details. We're going to link your, when are you um, starting your podcast? When are you going to launch that? We'll link that in the show notes too. And also everybody get your book. Oh my goodness. Oh gosh. Yes. So eavesdrop with Ella. I recorded episodes, including a wonderful one with you. Um, I am hoping to publish within the next two weeks, hopefully before Christmas. I just, the book has been taken a lot more of my energy even after post-publication than I anticipated, but it's, it's been a wonderful journey and I'm really grateful, but yes, my goal is within the next 10 days. Also congratulations on the book. I genuinely enjoyed it. There's more I could talk to about it. Like there were a lot of ideas in there that I think were really admirable and very exciting things on your journey. And I just look forward to seeing this, you know, even get higher on the charts. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Thank you so very much. And Rudy, thank you so much for all of your uh, legal wisdom. And I'm with you on the transportation front. We being from California, myself, Orange County, like there's a lot of work that could be done on normalizing public transportation overall. I took the bus to school. I went to Rosary and I, t- I was the only girl in the whole dang school that was taking the public bus every single day to get there. Me too. I took I took the bus home from Servite. And I, I mean, I, I can regal you with stories of, of how I grew up on a bus. Uh, so should you want a guest if should should you ever want a guest on your show to like get into the nitty gritty awesomeness of public transportation and the future of transportation and what I do for Forbes I'd be happy to go on there and and really nerd out with you Ella yes I just invited myself onto your podcast but you know what you. Uh, I thought there was an opening and I went for it okay, sometimes perfect. you have That's to market boost. yourself you have that to market your yourself boost. when that you was gotta, your boost shot for Ella you're See like that? you look like, like you could use just like on just like Ella is, is, is selling 25 <laughs> boosts i'm selling selling 25 cent rudy that's what i'm doing i will have you on i will shoot you an email um (laughs) and on how to put the podcast with you rudy i would love to have you on you're a joy i didn't get enough time with you today and i just so appreciate it thank you both love it Good is in the Details is produced by Dr. Gwendolyn Dolsky and Rudy Salo. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, please scroll down to the bottom and hit that five-star review. Or take a screenshot of this episode or your favorite episode and tag us on Instagram, Good is in the Details Pod. If you'd like to get in touch, you can email us, goodisinthedetailspod at gmail.com. We're also on Facebook, Good is in the Details Pod. And if you'd like to support the show, join our Patreon at patreon.com slash goodisinthedetails. Remember to check our show notes so you can get a link to Ella's book. And we'd also like to thank our sponsor for this episode, avonmoreinc.com. If you or any of your friends love to play bridge, you have to check out avonmoreinc.com. They have everything you need for your next bridge party. They've got tallies, coasters, smart playing cards, which are also great for kids. Go to avonmoreinc.com. I'll link them in the show notes and let them know that good is in the detail sent you. Okay, this is our last episode of 2023. We're looking forward to seeing you in 2024. We'll be kicking off 2024 with Tom Morris to talk about his book on the art of achievement. Okay, happy new year, everyone. Bye.